Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. I was dumbfounded. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I still don't believe it. And she asked, you know, do you think this might be your dad's? And as soon as we all saw that signature, we said, yeah, that's his. In this episode of Hometown Stories, a history buff in the Netherlands. I immediately start to think who was this man. A gemologist in Italy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the internet can do magic. And a decades-old mystery. But I just don't think we'll ever know. Make for a reunion a family will cherish long into the future. I still can't believe it. I, it's, it seems crazy. <laughs> In mid-November, we got an email into our newsroom inbox, and I had to read it a couple of times to make sure I was fully comprehending this crazy story. All right. Thanks for troubleshooting there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> That's my first Zoom call, so sorry. It came from Janie Simon. We connected on Zoom a couple of days after she sent her email. She's currently living in the Netherlands. She says she's a big history buff with a particular interest in the World Wars, which was actually kickstarted when she learned not too long ago that her own uncle was once a prisoner of war in World War II. That really ignited my interest because I was watching him heal. I was watching a family story unfold. And I was also at a new phase of my life where I had stepped out of my corporate life and was looking for something to give me passion and a purpose. And all of that just kind of collided at the same time. And that collision kind of became an obsession. I would say it's a part of my everyday life to read about it or research it in some aspect, not so much from a war standpoint, you know, the strategy of war but more so the stories, the home front stories, the stories of the soldiers. Um, that element of the war really fascinates me. And that's what recently led Janie to scan an online French auction house, which listed a number of items from a French military museum. It was just a rainy day and I was sitting with a cup of coffee and decided I would just scroll through the auction items. And that's where Janie, a collector of wartime artifacts, would find the item that would become the basis of her email to us. When I got to the picture of the cap, what intrigued me is in the description header, it actually had the name of the pilot. Her mouse hovered over a B-24 pilot's cap from World War II. The description reads, in khaki garbadine, faux leather chin strap present, U.S. troop badge in gilded metal, partially unstitched brown leather sweatband. But it also had a signature, clearly inscribed inside, identifying the all-wool cap as belonging to an E.B. Thrasher Jr. So, of course, I couldn't scroll past that because I immediately start to think, who was this man? Did he survive the war? Could he be buried right here 
in an American cemetery in the Netherlands or possibly in France? Did he have family? If he has family, do they know about this cap? Would they like to have the cap? And so my mind just started going. She followed a digital trail that led her to the Facebook profile of someone who she thought might be Thrasher's daughter-in-law and commented on her public profile picture writing, hi, if you're the daughter-in-law of E.B. Thrasher, please check your messenger as I have written to you. Within a couple of hours, she responded. Jamie's hunch was right. Her digital trail led her from the French auction house website to a home in Roanoke, filled now, mostly, with memories. Yeah, he's been gone for three years now, and it's, it's been hard. Sue Thrasher is the widow of Ernest Boyce Thrasher Jr., a man she fell in love with in 1956 and said goodbye to in 2017. I met him across the street on the golf course. <laughs> Sue is 90 years old, and she is giddy with excitement when I arrive at her home on a chilly November afternoon. We wear masks and only talk outside for safety. What was your first impression of him? Very good. <laughs> we loved a lot of things that, you know, same things like particularly golf. She says E.B. was 10 years older than her. They dated about a year before getting married and later had four children. He couldn't have been better. He was, a, he was the best husband and the best father. And you'll find out from my children. Good dad. Yeah, he was real good. That's Andrew Thrasher, the youngest of the four. He was there when we needed him. He was kind of the quiet type, but when he spoke, you listened. <laughs> They show me a poster board that was made for their dad's funeral service in 2017. It has a lot of family pictures, pictures of him in uniform as a young man, and a picture of him celebrating his 90th birthday at Hooters, which makes them all smile. E.B. Thrasher graduated from Jefferson High School and later Roanoke College, earning a bachelor's degree in business. After the war, he worked for the Veterans Administration for 25 years. He loved gardening and golf, and he even scored a hole-in-one at that golf course across the street where he first met Sue. All of his children say he was a good man and a father they loved dearly. He was great, you know, always supported. That's Steve, one of Andrew's brothers. But as good of a relationship they had with their dad, there was a chunk of his life they knew very little about. Because he rarely talked about it. So I just knew he was in the Air Force and he flew a, a bomber. That's pretty much, you know, growing up is all I really knew. I honestly, I can't think of any conversation that I ever had with him about the war. We just knew he was in the service and flew an airplane, but really that was about it. That's Richard, the third brother, who also initially reacted with skepticism when Andrew shared the message from Janie. Nowadays you're suspicious of anything that's, that's a stranger. First you're kind of like, well, is this really real? But... They struck up a conversation with this online stranger who sent them a picture of the cap, which kind of changed everything. And she asked, you know, do you think this might be your dad's? And as soon as we all saw that signature, we said, yeah, that's his. On the inside where his signature was, that's his hat. As soon as I saw the signature, I knew it was my dad's signature. I was dumbfounded. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I still don't believe it. They were shocked that a stranger found this cap, and they were utterly confused as to what it could have been doing in France since the 1940s. But along with the discovery of this cap, 
Jeannie also shared her research into the B-24 pilot bomber. According to online military records, Thrasher enlisted in the Army December 4, 1941. That's just a few days before the attack on Pearl Harbor. He became part of the 450th Bomb Group, 721st Squadron, based in Italy. Janie sent the family links to a website dedicated to the 450th. There's a picture of their dad, 2nd Lieutenant Thrasher, on the website, listed with a group of men he trained with, all smiles and uniforms in front of a B-24 bomber, nicknamed the Liberator. According to the 450th's records, Thrasher flew more than 50 missions over the skies of Europe. In 1944, he flew 16 missions in June alone. One entry from that month reads, Upon returning from the mission, interrogation reports show the target to be well hit. Smoke rose to 15,000 feet in the air. The movie this evening was Going My Way, starring Bing Crosby. This was certainly one of the outstanding pictures that we have had. Growing up and even to this day, it's just something we really didn't know much about. And uh, finding out now, is, it's kind of nice. So now, the Thrashers had a little more knowledge and a promise to help get the hat to Roanoke. And Janie had a plan. I explained to them that this was an auction taking place in France. Typically, it would be an in-person auction, but because of um, COVID um, lockdown um, measures in France, the auction was not in person. It was only online. And so that caused some complication on bidding. But I told them that I had a friend who um, was a professional antique dealer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the internet can do magic. This is Sarah. We connected over Zoom one day, adjusting for time zones. I reached her at her home in Florence, Italy. So I'm a gemologist. I used to work in Paris until my 30 years old. I've been a mom after my 30 years old in Italy. I used to work just a little bit in uh, this area. I helped my husband who has a leather factory in Tuscany. And I've been back in the business with uh, antique jewels more or less two years. Sarah and Janie are friends, but theirs is a friendship formed completely online. I love making friends. And Sarah is someone that I met through my World War II research. We just share information with each other, have never met each other actually, but have been friends for a couple of years and just kind of resources for each other. She first asked me if I knew the auction house who had this car for sale. And actually, it's a website where you can find a very important number of auction French house. And I used to check this website, uh, I think, every day since uh, two years. Janie says she asked Sarah to get the bid process started, and Sarah enthusiastically agreed. I felt the urge to help them, and Janie was uh, very excited too. But it wasn't just the thrill of the buy or a favor for a friend that Sarah said she agreed to help. It's also because returning this cap was a gift from the liberated to the liberator. It's a very sad story, and my grandmother didn't talk that much about her father, but it was very present in her, in her heart all of her life. She was only five when uh, 
when he died. Sarah tells me her great-grandfather was a man named Marcel Schnurb. She emailed me a couple of pictures of him, including a black and white one from 1922 that's now faded to a sepia yellow. It's Marcel and his wife Yvonne on their honeymoon in Venice. It looks like they're in the Piazza San Marco, with serious faces and a bunch of pigeons at their feet. Schnurb was a jeweler in Paris, a father of four, and a passenger on the first train from Paris to Auschwitz. He died there, April 22, 1942, with the numbers 27890 tattooed on his chest. He felt that he didn't have to hide because he, he used to serve during the First War, so he didn't want to hide himself and the, his family. But tragedy didn't stop there for the Schnurb family. Sarah sends me another photo. It's of a young boy with curly hair, wearing white lace-up boots and a bracelet and necklace. He's perched on a table with this really surly look on his face. It's her great-uncle Jacques, her grandmother's brother. He would die around the same time as his father while in hiding. No one really knows the circumstances of his death. He was about 20. Sarah says it's still heartbreaking for her family, even without ever having met them. On her mother's side, she tells me some of the family was part of the French resistance. She sends a picture of her grandfather, George, as a child. He looks to be about six years old, in a swimming costume with a white tank top and dark shorts, sitting somewhere in a body of water. He's got the look of any young boy who's been tasked with having to pose for a picture with a smile and a squint that says, do I really have to? My grandfather was only a little child. He used to almost every day carry false papers in his backpack. When he was going to school, obviously they didn't tell him what it was about, but he helped. Schnurb died before liberators, like Thrasher, would eventually help bring the horror of war to an end. And that's why Sarah says getting the cat back to this family was a must and why securing the winning bid felt so good. Oh, I feel, you know, uh, how do you say, guys, goose uh, skin when you are very excited, getting very emotional because she also sent very quickly a photo of Trasha. And it was so sweet photo with a nice smile of, uh, of this man. So I obviously very quickly said, so I would be very happy to, to help her and the Trasher family to, to get back this hat. I thought it was such a, a lucky find that we had to do everything we, we could to help this, this so nice uh, Christmas gift for the family. Sarah received the cap at home in Florence first. Her email included pictures of her teenage daughter smiling and holding up the hat, making sure to keep it away from the cat, Sarah tells me. And then, from France to Italy, the cap came home. Looks like it's taped very well. Out on her back patio, Sue and her daughter Linda Bach are tearing into the brown parcel. It arrived a couple of days ago, but Sue waited for Linda and her husband to drive in from North Carolina so she could be part of the much-awaited unboxing. Andrew and Steve and Richard are gathered around, watching as Sue makes the first incision. Big scissors would be better. 
Okay. A few slashes with scissors. Out comes bubble wrap and a bag. Oh, wow. And finally, the hat. There's a bubble wrap there. There we go. Oh. Sue is waving her arms with excitement. There's a twinkle in her eye. He's got his signature right in the middle. I feel like he is giving his family like this little wink and nudge. And it's like, okay, you know, yes, I I left this earthly world in 2017, but I, you know, I want you to have this cap. It's been floating around and I want you to have it. And I just, I'm so honored just to be a little tiny part in being able to return something to this family. We're proud of him and it's funny how somebody may pass away, but then things keep happening where their legacy seems to, to go on. He'd probably love it. He, he could probably tell us why his hat's still over there. Oh, he'd be so, he'd be happy. He would be so happy that the hat's with his family. Like I said, instead of a stranger, it's back home. Daddy's home. <laughs> Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. Our editor is Ben Requelmy. I'm Leanna Scacchetti. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.